0: This is Luke 19, verse 28, and this is God's word to you because he's your king. And when he, that's Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near uh, to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those uh, who were sent away and found it just as he had uh, told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks uh, they spread their cloaks on the road as they were drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, from the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if, if they, these were silent and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he, entered, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, "It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to, to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. All the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us, our Creator, the King of all things. You have made yourself known to us in your word, and especially in the Gospels as we see uh, our Savior. We ask that you give us your Spirit to prepare our hearts so that as we meet him in these scriptures, We would have hearts of faith that receive him and receive the mighty works that you've done for us. And so I pray that uh, you would be our teacher now as we open your word, Uh, give us your spirit to to, um, enlighten our minds uh, that we can understand. And I pray that you would take uh, the words of my mouth and that you would apply them uh, to each of the individual lives and the thoughts and the hearts that are sitting here, um, that you may minister and reveal yourself uh, to each one of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the most kind of common uh, descriptions of a spiritual life, especially in our day, especially in a place like Bellingham, is that the spiritual life is primarily a journey. You know, uh, finding out the truth, finding out about God is not so much about Uh, coming to a destination, arriving, but it's about the journey that you're on 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 the path of getting there. And so, you know, there's a famous uh, quote from Buddha that says it's better to travel well than to arrive. And, you know, in some regards, in many regards, as Christians, we believe that same thing. We would say, uh, you know, you're never gonna attain to loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself or a full knowledge of who God is. You're never gonna attain to that In this life, you're never going to know everything about God, even in the life to come, uh, even as as we're perfected. And uh, in fact, um, uh, we are, you know, we're pilgrims, right? We're we're journeying towards the promised land. And uh, so there is a sense in which uh, our spiritual life is not about a moment. It's not about grabbing onto a truth. And uh, it it is about a journey. And yet, (laughs) as we come to the Gospels... And as Jesus talks about knowing God, having a relationship to God, he is consistently pressing us to a point of decision. He's pressing us to a moment of asking the question, who do you say that I am? He's constantly putting that before the people that are around him. And actually what you see in this passage is you see all different kinds of people having very extreme indifferent responses to who Jesus is. So uh, it's kind of an indicator of, uh, you know, if you're talking about Jesus, if you're talking about God, you can know whether you're talking about the real Jesus if you're kind of responding like the people uh, are in this passage. And they respond in very extreme ways, right? The disciples are uh, singing to him as the king and they're, you know, laying down their cloaks and welcoming him into the city and then the Pharisees are rebuking him and the the chief priests and the uh, the religious leaders want to destroy him, and then, and then the people are hanging upon all his words. It says at the end there, and uh, and what that means for us, what that when we come to a passage like that, one of the big questions that we have to ask is which group of people are we in? As we respond to Jesus, what group of people are we in? Are we aware of what group of, kind of group of people we're in? And uh, you know. Jesus, even though he acknowledges that your life is going to be a journey, you're going to be growing through your whole life, you're going to learn more about God, he is, he's not satisfied with that. He says, you're not on the journey until you've decided what you think about Jesus because Jesus says, I am the path. <laughs> if you're on a journey somewhere, you've got to ask, where, what's the destination? What are you moving towards? Even if you're, you're not going to get to the destination in this life, what path are you walking towards? And what road are you walking on? Jesus says, I am the road. I am the way, right, he says. And so until we ask that, answer that question, who is Jesus, uh, we haven't begun the journey. And so one of the big things that the Gospel of Luke is about is answering the question, uh, who is Jesus? And as a secondly, not just that question, who is Jesus, but how then shall we respond? And so as we look at this passage together, those are two of the questions we're going to uh, think through as we read through this. Who is Jesus? A simple question, but uh, an important question. It's an important question for his disciples. It's a uh, a question he's continually putting before them. Who do you say that I am? Even after they become his disciples, even after they follow him, he's asking them, "Who do you who do you say that I am?" And then, how are you going to respond to me based on that? Okay. So, two questions: Who is Jesus, and how should we respond to him? Uh, And this question is very close to the heart of what it means to know God. So first of all, who is Jesus Christ? Now, for a Jew, in in the first century, in Jesus' context, reading this passage... You know, you're reading about Jesus, he's asking for a donkey, and he's going to Jerusalem, and, uh, and he's going into the temple. These are all things that aren't a part of our kind of uh, cultural experience. But in, uh, in the stories that Jews grew up singing about and talking about, teaching to their children, all of the things in these passages would be uh, drawing up for them allusions to the Messiah. The Old Testament uh, promised King who is going to come and, and be the, you know, rescue the world and bring peace to the world. All the images in this passage is what have brought up. You know, it's a, uh, the king. They're singing uh, about the king, and he's coming to the royal city, Jerusalem, and he's coming to the temple. All of these images had to do with the Messiah. And so what do we learn about the king, this king, this Messiah, this promised king in this passage? Well, two things. I think we learn about his character and about his identity. Okay, first of all, we learn about his character. Um, C.S. Lewis has a, wrote an essay called "The Necessity of Chivalry." Um, you know, he he called himself a dinosaur. He was he he you know he's very traditional kind of uh, kind of person. Read a lot of medieval writers and things like that, and uh, so he was very interested in medieval ideas like chivalry. And I, I put a little quote for you on page three of your bulletin uh, from this essay where he says. Um, that the medieval ideal, this is the medieval ideal about what a man is, the medieval ideal brought together two things which have no natural tendency to gravitate towards one another. It brought them together for that very reason. It taught humility and forbearance to the great warrior because everyone knew by experience how much he usually needed that lesson. It demanded valor of the urbane and modest man because everyone knew that he was as likely as not to be a milksop. The man who combines both characters, both characteristics, this humility and this, uh, and this valor and this strength. The man who combines both characters, the knight, <laughs> is a work not of nature but of art. Of that art which has human beings instead of canvas or marble for its medium. So here, Lewis is giving this medieval idea of what does it mean to be a true man? And he says that it's this combination of these, it seems like opposite characteristics of strength and gentleness, right? Of uh, the great warrior with uh, tenderness and humility. And I think that these two qualities are exactly what we see in the true king in this passage. These two qualities. So, you know, for example, you look at this incident with the cult um, where Jesus says to his disciples, he's on the Mount of Olives, he's about to come into Jerusalem, he says to his disciples, go and get me a little donkey that I'm going to ride in on the donkey uh, into Jerusalem. And actually what he's doing is he's enacting, there's an Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah 9 uh, that talked about the king who's going to come and that he was going to come riding on a donkey. Let me just read it to you. Uh, Behold your king who is coming to you righteous and having salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He shall speak peace to the nations. His rule should be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so here's this picture of the king of the world is coming, you know, the king of the whole world, all nations bow to him, and he's, you know, or what, you know, riding on a donkey and into town. It's this juxtaposition of of supreme power and deep humility. And what is captured in this king is part of his character. Is there is this humility, this lowliness to him, and not just that. But look at this in verse in verse forty one. As he comes to the city and he's looking at Jerusalem, look at his response. Jerusalem actually in seventy AD was destroyed by the Romans. Uh, the temple was was leveled, uh, and it was a terrible. Uh, massacre of the Jews in 70 A.D., and Jesus is anticipating that this is going to happen. And uh, what he says is, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And so you see, first of all, the king is lowly, is humble, he's riding on the donkey, and He's weeping. There's deep compassion. Uh, You you get a a picture into the emotional life of the king of the whole world. Is deep compassion and love for this people. that Actually, he's saying they deserve this judgment. This judgment is going to come because uh, they've become this kind of insular, self-righteous people who don't want to have God's calling for their life to bring the nations in. And they've rejected the Messiah. And the result is going to be that the Romans are going to come against them. And he's weeping over it. Uh, even though they deserve it. And so there's this tenderness, but on the other side, it's combined with this strength, this conviction, this, I mean, not only is he pronouncing kind of a judgment on the city, but, uh, but you see that, you know, he goes into the temple and there's this great, famous scene where Jesus goes in the temple and he's throwing over the tables uh, where in the temple, in the outer courts, there was this place where the Gentiles were supposed to come in and they were going to sing uh, to God and they were supposed to, the people who were not Jews, the outsiders who knew nothing about God could come in and participate in the worship and they'd made it into this marketplace where it's just Terribly distracting to even try to encounter God. They're, you know, selling sacrificial animals and and changing money and all these things. And he goes in and he's in a rage and he's just throwing over tables. And what you see is this combination of just within these few verses of humility and compassion and gentleness and this big heart, and yet he's also a man of strength. He's a man of conviction, a man of wrath. (laughs) And uh, and you know, I think that. This, these two combinations, I, you know, if you're a dad, I, I, I know that I sense that this is part of my calling as being a dad, is to bring strength and tenderness simultaneously somehow uh, to a family, to my family. And, and and for most of us, we know that we, we're constantly erring on one side of, of either being harsh and uh, distant or demanding or or just kind of a pushover and, uh, and you know, Uh, what what does he say, Uh, uh, the urbane man or being a milksop or something like that, as Lewis says, we have a a tendency to to go to one side or the other. And here we see both of those perfectly matched up in Jesus. And that's why, you know, when you come to the book of Revelation, uh, the end of the Bible, and it's got this picture of Jesus kind of in heaven and, and the angels around, they're worshiping him. They always say that the worthy is the lamb. That when people come to Jesus and they follow him, it's, it's not just because they owe it to him. They do owe it to him. It's because they say he's worthy of it. He has this character that we all know that we should be, that we're meant to be, that none of us match up to. We see it perfectly in Jesus. This combination. I, you know, I'll tell you why. Uh, that, that's how God is, these two combinations. You know, in theology... Throughout history, they've said that, that there are these two aspects to God, God's transcendence and God's imminence. And what God's transcendence is, trans, God's transcendence means that God is the, you know, distant creator of the universe. He's majestic. He's holy. He dwells in inapproachable light. He's a consuming fire who, uh, you know, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet, simultaneously, he's our Father who says, come to me. <laughs> Anything you have need of, ask of me. And uh, his mercies are new every morning. He's tender. He's both these things simultaneously. And we can't even even fathom that, but, but they're both true. And so what you see in Jesus is the perfect image, the perfect reflection of who God is, the perfect character of God seen in flesh and blood. And, you know, that's what it means to be, that's what a human is supposed to be. That's what we're all called to be, right? The Bible says that we were made in the image of God. We were supposed to show the world this is what God's character is like, and all of us are, you know, there's all of us have kind of a, a hint of that left in us. You still get a hint of who God is, but it's just it's deeply kind of distorted and marred by our sin, and we fall far short of the glory of who God is. And yet, in Jesus, the character of God is just shining bright. You know, I love what Trev said uh, during the assurance of pardon: the the, the light of the King, uh, of His face shining upon us. Jesus is radiant with the ca- character of God; it's just flowing out of Him, and now. What do we know about the king is first his compelling character that's worthy. It's worthy to be followed. And yet, because he's showing us who God is, that tells us something else about who this king is. It's not just his compelling character, but also his identity. Who is this guy? <laughs> who is this man? And a uh, couple things that we see about him. First of all, as I said already, he's the king, he's not just a king, he's the king. Uh, you know, look at verse 37. It says, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Blessed is the king. And what actually what they're singing, they're quoting, they're singing uh, Psalm 118 which was a very well-known psalm during this time. It was a psalm that was sung in the Old Testament when the Davidic king was coming back to Jerusalem. And, he, you know, after he'd won a, a, a big battle and the people would all come out and the priests would come out and they'd be singing and welcoming him into the city. And what they're saying here is that Jesus is the, the Davidic king was promised to come and he's going to come and restore the, restore the world. He's going to be the hero of the world and You know it's interesting i was re- I was listening to a uh, a sermon about this passage, and the pastor was saying that he had come across a number of websites where uh, uh, these websites were saying that there's all kinds of stories throughout the, uh, throughout all different ethnic groups and throughout history, even before Jesus' time, where all these different people groups had these stories about this promised king who's going to come and who's going to make everything right. and these websites are saying, listen. This is not something new, Jesus being the king who's coming, coming to earth, and he's going to make all things right, he's going to be the savior. He's a copy. All cultures have something like this. And uh, Jesus is just another one of these kings that all these cultures have been talking about, have been promising. And what, this, what the pastor said is, he says, well, you know what, that's what we should expect we should expect that all these cultures would have this anticipation of a king because if you go back in the Old Testament, it turns out that it's not just the Davidic king that was promised. But if you go way back into the beginning of Genesis, into the story of our our primordial parents who were in the Garden of Eden, who lived in the presence of God and who sinned against God, the last words, there were these final words that God said to them before they were kicked out of his presence. You know what those words were? He said, the world's going to go bad, life's going to be bad for you, but there's one who's going to come. He's going to come, and he's going to slay the dragon. He's going to crush his head, and he's going to be wounded in the process, but he's going to win the battle. And it's going to be the seed of this woman. And and from the very beginning, there's this promise. The last words that humans heard when they saw God face to face was that a king is going to come. And so we should expect that in every culture, in our collective subconscious (laughs) We should have, you know, way down in our bone marrow and our primitive memories, we should have a longing for that king that was promised to all humanity at the very beginning. And that's why it is. That's what we should expect. And finally, the true king is coming. And that's what, uh, that, that's what this passage is saying is, first of all, that Jesus is that king. But he goes farther than that. He's not just the king, but he claims to be the God of the Old Testament. Jesus claims to be the God of the Old Testament. This is, this, is, uh, this is amazing. You know, some people ask, does Jesus ever really claim to be God anywhere? And if you read through the New Testament, it's on almost every page of the New Testament. Um, but let me just give you a few examples here. Um, they're subtle, but pay attention to them. So first, um, Luke notes, if you look at verse 29, he talks about the mount that's called Olivet. And then he also repeats that again that Jesus was coming down uh, the Mount of Olives in verse thirty seven. He's coming down the Mount of Olives, and uh, you know that might that doesn't mean a whole lot to us the Mount of Olives. But that you know I was talking about the prophecy in Zechariah nine about the King who's coming on the donkey. Zechariah fourteen that same book. There's this there was this famous passage about when God was going to come uh, to Jerusalem and there was going to be Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. It was going it said that the Lord was going to stand on the Mount of Olives. And here Jesus comes, and he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he says, I am that God. I'm the Lord Yahweh of the Old Testament. I am him. Now standing on the Mount of Olives before Jerusalem, looking down at Jerusalem and weeping over the city. And then he goes to his disciples, and he says, you know, go get me a donkey. I'm going to ride in on a donkey. Can you go ask someone for a donkey? And he says in verse uh, 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. Who's going to be using the donkey? Jesus. And he says, The Lord has need of it. That same word, Kyrios, it's used in the Old Testament. And it says again in verse 34, they go get the, the donkey. And the guy asks them, Why do you need the donkey? And they say, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Curios, Yahweh of the Old Testament, that name, Jesus is applying to himself here. But then he says even one more thing that's really amazing here. Lastly, you know, he's coming down into Jerusalem. Everyone's singing to him and saying he's the king, and he's praising him. He's riding on the donkey. And in verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's a beautiful image where he says, "If the people weren't singing to me, the the rocks, the ground would open up and start singing. They want to burst. They want to burst into song. That they've been anticipating me coming." And you know, this is a, this is another thing uh, that in in the Old Testament, there was this idea that when the King came, when the Savior came, he wasn't just going to come to individual people like us, you know, and uh, and I'm going to come into your life and I'm going to save you from your sin. I'm going to make your family better. That's not what he was going to do. He was going to come the whole creation. The mountains, the trees, the fields, all things, animals were anticipating him coming. And uh, there's this great, uh, Psalm 19 says, uh, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before (laughs) before the Lord. All the trees of the field are singing to God, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. And he says, you know what, when God comes, the ground and the trees are going to want to sing. And you know what, that's happening right now. God has come. He's come in me. Do you see how extreme of a claim he's making? I am the creator of the Old Testament. Can you imagine anyone saying that? And you answer that question, you know, who, who is this guy? He has this character that's deeply compelling. Everything that humanity is supposed to be is wrapped up in him. But even more, he's claiming to be God. And you know, you think about all the people that have been, you know, added benefit to the to humanity. You know, the 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 Gandhis or the uh, the uh, uh, Mother Teresa's or the Martin Luther King Juniors or you know the Martin Luthers or uh, Buddha, whoever it is that anyone thinks may have been a good person in humanity. Can you imagine any of these people saying? I am the person that the mountains are waiting to sing to because they can't wait for me to come. Uh, I'm the king of all peoples, and I'm going to bring peace, and I created all things. I'm the God of the Old Testament. Can you imagine anyone saying that, saying something like that? They would be mad. You'd say, you're crazy. And so what that leads us to is we have to ask the question, who is, who is Jesus? Well, uh, he's a man with a compelling character who claims to be God. How are we going to respond to him? And uh, what we see in this passage is three different responses from the different groups of people. Three different responses. The first two just, they don't work. (laughs) The first two don't work, and it leaves us with the third. So first, um, how can we respond to Jesus? What can we say to a guy who claims that the mountains want to sing to him and the ground wants to sing to him? Well, first we can say he's a good teacher. And this is the approach of the Pharisees. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So the disciples are singing to him. They're saying he's the king, he's the long-awaited one. And the, the, the Pharisees have this mixture where they say, Okay, we, we're happy to honor you as a rabbi. That you're a teacher, you have some helpful things to say to us. We want to listen, we want to be in dialogue about that. But let's tame it down a little bit, you know, that you're the Messiah, you're, you're, uh, you're the king, that you're making these claims. This is making us uncomfortable. And, you know, this is, ve- this is m- the majority response to how do we deal with this historical man named Jesus in our culture? How do, how do people deal with him? And the main thing we have to say, people say, is, well, I, I think Jesus was a good guy. I think he had many things to say. I think he was revolutionary. I think he believed in love. But I I, I don't believe he's he's particularly different than any of the other teachers that are uh, in the world, uh, that, the, that the world religions have seen. And um, they want to say that he's simply a good teacher. And Jesus, again and again, insists that we can't, call him that his response to the pharisees when they say teacher rebuke your disciples you can be our teacher you can be a rabbi Is he says the, the ground wants to sing to me the ground is about to burst out the earth is about to burst out because i created it and i'm the thing that the, the earth is eagerly longing and, and waiting for me to come his response is you can't just call me a good teacher and so actually the second response that we see in this passage from the uh from the The chief priests and the religious leaders is actually a more honest response than that. Is that they want to destroy him, right? Um, You see that there in verse 7. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. They said, He's not a good teacher, he's evil, he's a threat. He's going to disrupt people, he's going to lead people astray, he needs to be arrested. He needs to be, and eventually he needs to be killed. He needs to be stopped. And um, the fact is that, as you look, you know, you look at the history of the world. if If you made two lists, you made one list of of people who have really made a positive impact on humanity. People that humanity says this is someone who has really benefited. This is someone that is a model to us about how to live. And then you made another list of people who said that they were God you'll find that there's not a crossover. There's no crossover. Jesus is the only one who is a crossover on these two lists. Because who's on this list of people who said they're going to be God? These are people who have, you know, ten wives in in a compound, and, you know, the FBI should be investigating them. (laughs) They're manipulative, telling people that they're God, and that, you know, they are the voice of God, and, and that they created people, and that they're the savior of the world. When people talk like that, they should be on an FBI list. And yet, and that's what the chief priests are saying. He should be destroyed. He should be locked up. And yet no one has ever said that about Jesus, that he's, that he's evil. No one who's ever read his teachings, read the things that he says. You come, you come and you read them, and you find that they're full of wisdom. They're full of beauty. They're full of life. They're things that we should be living our lives by. We see this is what humanity is. How could someone who's mad and evil be saying these things? And actually, you see that in this text, that that's what the the people are saying in verse verse 48, that uh, they couldn't uh, find anything to do, um, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And so here's this paradox of no one who has ever been like this, who would make these kind of outrageous claims, and yet his life verifies it. The character and the identity match. And so the question for us is how can we respond to that? And the, the last response that we see in this passage, I think is the only honest response to dealing with Jesus, is that we can fall down and we can worship him. We can fall down and we can worship Jesus. And uh, let me just say two things about what worship looks like. And I'm going to end with these two things. So first of all, that worship is praise. Worship looks like praise. And um, you see that um, when God comes to us, when we meet God who's come to us as a king, the response is joy, is singing, is delight, is praise. And for many people, you know, that question, why, why is Jesus, why is God always looking for praise? Why does he want people singing to him all the time? You know, is he, is he insecure? Uh, does he need us telling him how great he is? You know, if we know people who are looking for praise all the time, we say, what's wrong with you? You know, maybe you should go to a counselor, find out why, why do you need praise all the time? You know, we look at uh, famous stars who who want attention all the time. But, you know, I I was thinking about it, that um, one place where I think it's appropriate for someone to want praise, um, you know, I'm talking as a dad again, but is when a father wants his children to say to him, I think you're the best dad in the world. You know, I, I want my kids to say to me that I'm the best dad in the world. Now, that could be it's probably partly because I'm insecure, and that's, you know, massaging my, uh, uh, my insecurities. Um, but the reality is there's a deeper reason. Why do I want them to say I'm the best dad in the world? It's because if they say that, then I know that my love has gotten through to them. I know that it's hit them. I know that how I feel about them has gotten through, and they feel that pleasure. They feel that joy, and the only way they can respond is to say, You're the best dad in the world. And praise is the sound of delight. Praise is the sound of pleasure. When you have enjoyed something, when you've seen how amazing it is, you know, when you fall in love and, uh, and you say, You are so beautiful. I, you, feeling that pleasure, the only way to, to kind of uh, to do pleasure is by saying how much it means to you. You know, when you, someone makes you a great meal and you're just like, mm, this is so good, you have to say it, right? It results in praise. And that's why God wants praise for us is because he knows that who he is and what he's done for us has gotten through. It's hit our hearts. And the result is delight, is joy is playfulness, is song. And that's the response. It's not, you, you see what I'm saying, is, you know, when you ask who is Jesus, it's not just a head response of, oh, okay, he's yeah, he's God, come as a man to save the world and the mountains, want to sing to him. Okay, registered. That's not, that's not how you respond. The appropriate response is delight, amazement, joy, song. And, uh, and what that does is that leads to a second part of worship, is not just praise, but worship is service, is that we serve him, we follow him as the king, we do what he says. You know, uh, an important part of this passage is, you know, Jesus goes into the temple and he's driving out all the people who are selling in the temple. And what he says is this quote from Isaiah 56, that uh, my house is to be a house, of, uh, a house of prayer. And actually the full quote is, my, my house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. And what had happened is the Jews had become very insular. And they had this protective identity of we have God is our God. And all the people out in the world, all the Gentiles, the dirty people that, um, that don't know God, they don't know anything about God, we're his chosen, favored people. And we need to protect our identity as God's favored, chosen people. And what Jesus is saying, no, this temple, this house was supposed to be a place where all people are coming in and finding out who God is and singing to him and taking part of the delight in the delight. And what happens to us is when we see who Jesus is, and that delight, that praise has captured our hearts, we become a part of the welcoming community, a part of Jesus' welcome to all people and come and know God. That's the response. There's no response that's just... Uh, that you intellectually assert to who Jesus is, it's a transformation of your heart and a transformation of your life. Those are the options. (laughs) The first two don't work. (laughs) He's not a good teacher, and he's not evil. (laughs) So the only only response is that we can worship him. And so what we see is, who is Jesus? Jesus is a paradox. He's the king of the whole world who comes riding on a donkey, humble, (laughs) He's the judge of the world who goes and throws over the tables and and brings his wrath on the temple and yet he's weeping over this city. He loves it. Uh, He has deep compassion and all the people are coming to him. And, uh, And this is the paradox that we're invited into and when we see that paradox, we see that there's no one else like him. And the only response we can do is to worship. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you. For this word, we thank you that Jesus, there is a king. And that the promise that you made to our first parents when they were leaving the garden, that there would be another one who would come and who would fight the dragon, fight the serpent, and and free all people and bring peace. We see that he's brought peace to us. Fill our hearts with praise. Fill our hearts with delight. That we may know him and that we may see him. And that we may become the community of welcome that he has called us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' name.